The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics, a firsthand conversation with the people who are shaping the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterward, then we aren't doing our job. Richard Plepler, the chief executive officer and chairman of HBO, has seen many transformations during his 25 years at the Entertainment Network. From building the brand back up after The Sopranos, Sex and the City, and some of its other biggest hits had finished, to negotiating a landscape where a growing portion of his consumers don't even want a cable package, Plepler has molded HBO into a place where content remains king. We sat down recently in New York to talk cord cutting, sexual harassment in Hollywood, and what the network will do after Game of Thrones. Richard, thank you so much for coming Pleasure. by to the studio. Thank you for having me. So it's coming up to 25 years at HBO for you with the business in a variety of different roles. Tell me why when you look at HBO and you describe what you're doing and this business and all the changes you've seen, that we're now entering, this as you call it, a golden age of brand. You know... There's, there's so much content out there. There's a, there's a surfeit of content, more content now than at any time in the history of our business. There's some terrific content, there's some mediocre content, and there's some not so good content. So I think the truth of the matter is that brands matter now more than ever. And consumers, just look at your own life, you're in the business, you can't follow everything. You know, you hear about a show, you hear about uh, a new series. It's hard to keep up and it's hard to keep track. What you can follow is brands. And you know, I think, and if we're delivering on the implicit promise we make to our consumer, we're delivering on our promise to deliver quality content, to deliver something differentiated, to deliver original voices, to deliver something special to the consumer across a wide range of categories, documentaries, original movies, miniseries, half hours, late night, hour dramas. So I think what people count on us for is the curation of excellence. And what we have to do to continue to grow is keep delivering on that. And I'm happy to say that the great blessing for our company and for our brand is that the best talent continues to want to work with us and inside HBO. So we have this embarrassment of riches where every Friday in our company, we know of something exciting from the creative world that we didn't know about on Monday. And because we understand very, very clearly that the secret to our success 
are the people that come to work with us, the writers, the producers, the directors, the actors. The magic is out there. And our job is to open our doors and bring in all that talent to HBO to do what they do best. I sometimes say we're a bit like a great art gallery. And we want the best artists to hang their work inside of our gallery. You have, if you want to use the art metaphor, you know you have uh, um, the grand masters, you have uh, contemporary painters, you have emerging artists. We want all of those people to think of HBO first and to bring their great work inside the company. And fortunately, um, that, uh, we have a lot of momentum uh, with talent. Let's talk about how you keep that, how you keep that happening, how you develop that culture, how you develop that consistency. I mean, HBO is long known as a place that really celebrates artists, that celebrates the creative, that takes yeah. risk on products. When I think yeah. about something like Anita Hill and Confirmation or The Jinx or Game Change or stuff that you've done across the different um, platforms that you have. How do you really keep that going and developing a culture that artists, directors, actors want to be a part of and want to come to you first? You know, I think that we're very clear about uh, a core value, core ideology of our company, and that is that talent is sacred. And we are not creating these shows. No matter how fabulous our world-class development team uh, are, they're not the writers. They're supporters, they're nurturers, but the, the, the magic comes from outside of our building. And so you can't fake that. And I think that talent understands when they come into HBO that they are embraced and they are valued um, in a very special way. And not only in the development process, but the way the work is marketed and promoted in a bespoke fashion. So what happens is when people come into the company, they have an experience and they, they feel the HBO experience. And I think that becomes uh, a catalyst to bring in other members of the creative community. And we can't fake that, right? If, if, if what we say about ourselves isn't true, we're gonna be found out pretty quickly. So our best brand ambassadors are the talent who talk about working at HBO. We can't do better than that, than to have all those writers and all those producers and actors saying, no, I had a tremendous experience there. I want to do it again. Oh, and by the way, you should go there and do it as well. They're, they're our best brand ambassadors, even better than we are for ourselves. When I was growing up, HBO was one of the few premium outlet subscribers of where you could go to really expect that, that type of programming. Yeah. Obviously, during the 25 years you've been there, and the last five years in particular, Hulu, Amazon, other OTT providers, many different choices for this same core group of talent to go try and get projects greenlit, Absolutely. to go other places, Netflix. Do you find that environment is making it... Uh, adding to an embarrassment of riches of content? Are you concerned that you're going to stop getting first dibs on certain projects? How are you out there first with things all, like Big Little Lies, look, for instance? First of all, I've never thought that this was a zero-sum game. I've never believed that because The Crown is a good show on Netflix that that somehow diminishes Westworld or Big Little Lies uh, or True Detective. It doesn't. It just means there's an additive amount of quality out in the landscape. Our job is play our game. 
continue to deliver on what we do. I say over and over again, what we, our North Star is let's make sure that we're guaranteeing that the consumer is not only getting the best quality of content inside the HBO uh, offer, but that we are making our product available whenever, however, and wherever our consumer, current and future, wants it. And that's why we built a multilateral distribution strategy, and that's why we're continuing to stick to the core values of the way we think about the creative process, which is come in here and do great work. And for us, the metric is quality. And we think that if we stick to that and we adhere to that, talent recognizes it and it becomes a virtuous cycle. And that, fortunately, we're seeing over and over again. The line at our door, this, this is a, a, another way to look at it. With all of these options that are available to talent and to consumers, the line at our door as we sit here today in the fall of 2017 is longer than it was five years ago and much longer than it was 10 years ago. So if we continue to execute, and that's our job to continue to execute, because believe me, if we don't deliver on that promise, then you're absolutely right. There is good, that people are going to turn and go elsewhere. But I think the reason we're growing is because we are delivering on it. And our job is to work with the people we want to work with, to pick thoughtfully about the kinds of things we want to do, to trust talent, to execute their vision, and, of course, to work with the people we think have a shared vision with us. We do that. We're going to continue to grow and continue to surprise people and continue to delight people, which is what we're in business to do. I want to drill down on that a little bit. When you talk about HBO now, there's two words that come up quite frequently, two phrases. One is multilateral distribution. Second is traditional ecosystem. Yep. Now, when we look at, uh, obviously, there's the midst of a deal going on with AT&T buying Time Warner, of which HBO is, of course, a part. When we think about the traditional ecosystem, you've always said that you believe that HBO's growth will continue to come mostly from the traditional ecosystem, that meaning cable subscription audiences and licensing. What, what I've said was we are going to grow multilaterally. And what I meant by that is we've, we looked out at the market four or five years ago, and we realized we were totally underpenetrated. And that at about a third of the country, we could do much better than that. And when we made the decision to build our standalone streaming service, we decided, remember, at that time, there were only probably 5 million broadband-only homes. This is 2010 and HBO Go. No, no, no. This is probably uh, the beginning of 13. And we looked out, there were about 5 million broadband-only homes. When we stood on the stage in Cupertino to announce in the March of 2015, there were probably eight and a half to 10, and as you and I sit here today, it's close to 20. So we, we knew that that audience was growing, that cord cutter audience was growing. On the other hand, we knew we were underpenetrated in our traditional ecosystem. So our job was to design deals that incentivized our traditional partners to grow and package HBO, because we saw a lot of growth in that market, and to make sure we provided an option to our consumers that they could get HBO if they only had a broadband-only service. Both. And we knew it wasn't going to be cannibalistic, we knew it was going to be additive, and I think we've been proven correct. When you look at it not being cannibalistic, yes. your own stats show that it's very low in terms of people That's who correct. take away from the core HBO That's business. That's correct. Because there are some people who prefer a traditional bundle. And maybe it's a skinnier bundle and it doesn't have, uh, you know, 180 channels in it. But 
For HBO, skinnier bundles have been a good thing because if you take the average price of a cable or a satellite or a telco subscription down from $100 to, say, $65 or $70, that means HBO, which has always been a la carte, right, is a much more digestible purchase for somebody off of a lower price point. So for us, skinny bundles have been a good thing. It's allowed the cable satellite telco operator to package us more effectively and opportunistically for us. And at the same time, we've been able to parallel process and to grow digitally. One has not been at the expense of the other. And as I like to say, nobody is selling HBO, whether it's digitally or whether it's in the traditional ecosystem, doing a favor to us. They're selling HBO because it's a great product and it helps keep their bundles stickier and because they know that their consumers want it. When you look at HBO now, and it's now about two years on now from the launch, launched the great fanfare with Apple. You always made this point that you didn't think it would be cannibalistic, that it Correct. was about expanding opportunities Correct. and audience. Correct. What has surprised you about that experience, though? The speed of cord cutting or the fact that this is going to be a trend that accelerates even more geometrically than we've seen, as we've seen even doubled since 2013 from under 10 to about 20 million. Now, where do you see the audience going and what have you learned that's been surprising about that product? Listen, I think that people, we designed our OTT strategy because as I said a minute ago, we understood and it didn't require too much rocket science to know that that cord cutter group was going to grow. And we thought quite obviously we needed to be available to that group to buy HBO if they wanted it without a traditional cable or satellite or telco package. We also knew that we could provide a very dynamic uh, uh, offer to our traditional partners to grow our business together and to create a win-win. And we knew we were underpenetrated. Remember, we were only in about a third of the country. And our research was pretty clear to us when we undertook it about two and a half, three years ago. And we saw that we had an additional 20, 25 million homes. As long as you explain to what we call the undecided voter, the persuadable voter, what was inside the HBO package, because people didn't know. You needed to explain to them that there's a library of 3,000 hours of programming, that we have four Hollywood movie studios, in addition to our terrific original programming. And you needed to remind people that HBO Go, which was off of a traditional script, subscription, meant you could get HBO on whatever device you wanted. As you began to socialize that, and as our partners began to market that more effectively and efficiency, efficiently, we began to see tremendous subscriber uptick. And you saw our third quarter numbers, which is 12% subscriber revenue growth. We're on track to have our biggest year of uh, subscription revenue growth in the history of the company. So I think we've been proven right. Great product, made available how, when, and where consumers want it, and make sure you're available throughout a multilateral distribution strategy. That's how we think about you know, when we current, our current strategy and about the future. And when we talk about this with original programming versus movie distribution and first run, were you surprised that so much of the media focuses on the original programming, yep. the Game of Thrones, the stuff that's created exclusively, the stuff that wins the kind of awards you guys have won? But the number of penetration in terms of movies is still so high yeah. and so much of the driver. Were you surprised that people didn't seem to be aware of the full package that HBO well, had? Well, the, the consumer, you know, if you look at viewership, 79% on, on, our, on their linear channels 
are watching movies, and somewhere around 72% across all platforms. So movies continue to be an incredibly popular source. Even people who have seen a movie in a theater are watching it a second time or even a third time on HBO. And we have, you know, four terrific Hollywood studios, first one pay window movies. That's a big additive piece of our offering. And again, we're starting to market our movie advantage more aggressively than we had in the past, just to remind the consumer how many great movies are on HBO. In addition to the library, you can go back and watch The Wire, you can go back and watch Sopranos, you can go back and watch Sex and the City. You know, there's a whole, if you missed Big Little Lies, go back and watch it. It, you know, if, if, you, if you missed True Detective, go back and watch it. Catch up. Get familiar with the product and the show. Come back to the next season or the next offering. So on demand, tremendous advantage. It came, remember, to HBO first. And now the beauty of all of our streaming services and the optionality that they present to the consumer, huge advantage for, for uh, the, the variable options that consumers have. So you mentioned The Sopranos, and when I look back at, when I go back to 2007, and you're named co-president in charge of programming, and The Sopranos is ending, and Sex and the City is gone, and in Hollywood, people are saying that HBO is over. New York Times. Saying, <laughs> but when, when I w- was privileged enough to uh, be given that uh, job, the New York Times ran an article by my friend Bill Carter, for whom I have enormous respect, and said, HBO's competitors say they've stumbled. And I always like to say the piece hurt for three reasons, right? It was written by the Times, which I have a lot of respect for. It was written by uh, a tremendous reporter, Bill, who I equal respect for. And there was some, tr- some truth to it. We had, because I think we had become a little hubristic. Um, 02 to 05, I think we... 02 to 07, rather. I think we... Um, we rode that Sopranos, Sex in the City, uh, Tiger, and we thought, well, we had the secret sauce. And I think we lost a little bit of our insurgent voice, which we had brought to the dance uh, for so many years. And I think the job of my colleagues and myself, uh, hardly did it alone, uh, was to refocus on that insurgent voice, to trust the writers and the auteurs who were coming in with new ideas. And to remember, I remember saying over and over again in 07, there'll never be another Sopranos. What they'll be is the next terrific show. And let's just go back to our essence, which was trusting the voice of great artists and auteurs who have a vision for what they want that show to be. In came Alan Ball with True Blood and Lena Dunham with Girls and Armando Iannucci with Veep and, and Mike Judge and Alec Berg with Silicon Valley and these two guys, of course, who had never done television before, um, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, who had this idea to adapt George R. R. Martin's uh, books. And we believed in them and we trusted them and we thought they were special. Uh, and you could feel it and you could feel their passion in the room. And people always say, oh, that, you know, was such a brave thing. Well, it actually wasn't because if you sat with David and Dan and you saw the way they owned their brief when they were talking about what they thought Thrones could be, it was actually quite easy. When you saw the first cut of Thrones, did you know right away that it was going to be? Well, I've heard you tell this story before and I'm curious. um, I think the honest truth is that anybody who tells you that when they see the first cut of anything, they know that it's going to be a mega hit is, is, is lying to you. 
Nobody knows that. Bill Goldman famously said nobody knows anything. There's a lot of truth to that. What we knew is that something special was possible and that we believed in these guys to tell the story, that they were breathing um, the story of George's books and that they, they lived it. And you, you could feel that. So we placed our faith in them and an extraordinary team that they built around them and that was well placed. When you flash forward then 2013, you go through the 2007 to 2013 uh, period and rebuilding and refocusing. And then you take up the full reins. And the landscape has changed dramatically. We've talked about Go, we've talked yeah. about Now. And you start looking at the challenges you face. How did you approach that in the roadmap you wanted to set out? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, is, you may know a p- political junkie and uh, oh, I spend an, an inordinate amount of time uh, following politics and public policy. Um, so I, I, I looked at our challenges like a campaign. And um, I said, look, we have a, we have a core base um, uh, that about 30 million. I'm sure we have a bunch of opponents out there who are never going to subscribe to HBO because either it's too expensive or they don't like the content or they think they have enough. But what about the undecided vote? How many people are out there that either think they know something about the brand and don't or actually know very little about the brand? And what would happen if we could go to our current partners and make a very strong case that once you explain the value proposition of the brand, that we could actually move the needle significantly for them and for us, and parenthetically, if we built a standalone streaming service, how much room would we have if we were talking directly to the consumer? And what we learned through that research um, was that um, there was a huge persuadable vote, somewhere around 20 million, 25 million homes. So we decided we're going to go get that. We're going to build a streaming service to do it on one side of the river, and we're going to work with our partners on the other to let them test that proposition, because we were very clear that it was uh, empirical and that it was unimpeachable and that there was gold in the hills for everybody and that we ought to market and we ought to move toward it. So we designed our deals with our distributors to incentivize them to, to, to grow. We built our streaming service. We added digital partners over the last couple of years. And the result uh, is the year we're on track for. In terms of the back end and the tech yeah. of building out HBO Now, yeah. that was a bit of a rocky yeah, So road. look, the dig on us when we, anna- we announced our uh, plans in an investor conference in October 2014, and we said, I think the phrase I used from the stage was, HBO's going to go beyond the wall, uh, to coin a <laughs> phrase. And um, when, when we all went up on stage, um, Kevin Tuchahara from Warner Brothers, John Martin from Turner, and, uh, and Jeff Bukas, the chairman of, of Time Warner, the first question was to me um, from the eminent uh, analyst, Rich Greenfield. And essentially, it was a question which crystallized the implicit um, doubt about what we could do, which was, where's your tech DNA? How are you possibly going to be able to do it? And of course, even if you can do it, won't it become cannibalistic? And we said, I said, yes, we can and no, it won't. And our tech team, um, which was absolutely extraordinary, which we built from a standing start uh, over the course of the last, you know, three, four years in Seattle, which has been nothing short of Herculean. And then we joined up uh, with BAMTAC um, to 
to, to you know, help us uh, with our back end. That was a very, turned out to be a very wise decision mm. because they were terrific partners, extremely helpful to us. And uh, we made it work. And uh, we were able to push the switch in, in March of 2015 and launch HBO Now uh, with, with Apple. And we've seen tremendous uh, acceleration uh, since then. So, no, there, you know, look, none of this is easy. And there were, I would be lying to you if I didn't say uh, there weren't uh, my fair share of sleepless nights. And uh, I'm sure many of my colleagues shared those. But we got it done and we're very proud of it. When you looked at these challenges in 2013, in addition to heightening awareness and exposure to the brand, how much has mobile consumption figured into the design? Obviously, with the AT&T deal, there's been suggestion that you could further so tailor my content. So my 14-year-old um, <laughs> is uh, a textbook example, as I think many, um, she's actually Generation X, but millennials um, are, are, are agnostic, right, about what screen they're watching on. Um, I don't think you want to watch Game of Thrones on your phone, right? But you might catch up on Bill Maher on your Unless phone. Unless you're old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you want to, again, back to the point I made earlier, you just want to be available everywhere. And you want to give people the convenience and the luxury of being able to use your service however they want to use it. Look, last night... Um, I watched um, a show from another network um, on my iPad um, uh, for various reasons. I was in transit, and that's how I watched it. Uh, I want to make sure people can watch shows from our network if they want to on their phone or on their iPad. Um, and, of course, for certain shows, you expect that people are going to appreciate a 60-inch you know, uh, experience. But it's the flexibility. It's the optionality that you want to provide. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. When you talk about HBO, you talk about creating addicts. Yeah. And addicts of the content. And Absolutely. that's really what it's all about on any platform. So much of that, as we've discussed, is about culture. And it's not just about the culture that attracts people to want to have, want to work with you, want to create that content. It's also about the culture you create internally at HBO among your own staff and also going up and down the chain. And, and you mentioned Jeff Bucus earlier who's been a mentor of yours and a friend. And I'm just wondering how much you learned by example from him and developing that vision and taking the I learned a lot from him. Look, you know, Jeff had my job uh, from 1995 or 6 all the way to 2002. And I had the privilege um, of, of working for him and next to him. And I think he did a few things very well. Um, that I, that I learned a lot from. One of them was he was a great cheerleader. And I watched him pick up the phone um, over and over again and call different colleagues uh, and say, well done, couldn't have done that without your input. Um, and sometimes uh, I would watch him do it and I didn't even know he had been aware that 
this particular individual had done what they did, but he made it his business to know that that was the case. And I think when you create that kind uh, of spree decor inside your company, it is, it is infectious, it is invaluable, and he was terrific at that. The other thing Jeff did is he made big bets. Uh, remember, when we chose to do From the Earth to the Moon in 1996, it was an $80 million miniseries, um, and, and you know, telling the story of the Apollo space program, that wasn't a given, but it brought Tom Hanks uh, into the family. It created a certain idea that we would take on big, bold projects. That brought about Band of Brothers, where Tom and Steven Spielberg came in, and we did this miniseries based on Stephen Ambrose's book. Those were big bets. Band of Brothers $120 million, unheard of at that time. Ended up being a tremendous uh, brand elevation for HBO, creating tremendous brand elevation for HBO. Also, um, had a lot of back end attached to it, which we couldn't have assumed when we made the bet. So I think I learned from him, make big bets, trust talent, and be a great cheerleader. And I've tried to adhere to both of those uh, in my tenure. Uh, Band of Brothers is one of my favorite series, but another one is just very recent, which we mentioned, Big Little Lies. Is it surprising to you that a project that involved the star power of a Nicole Kidman, of a Reese Witherspoon, had these names behind it and really featured a woman's story and no, women's talent at its no center? No surprise at all. Did, but did, are you surprised that some people still say Big Little Lies was any court of risk uh, in terms of it being... That a general audience would want to consume. Well, them. first of all, you know, you know, add Laura, add Shaleen, add Alex. You know, I, I mean, the talent was extraordinary. Jean-Marc Vallée, David Kelly writing. I mean, that was that is a Hall of Fame group of talent. That is a textbook example of betting on artistic voices who are coming into the company. That's not a hard bet. Um, and it wasn't only because of, you know, the stars involved. It was a great story. They executed it brilliantly. Jean-Marc was an unbelievable, you know, auteur. No, there's not a better writer than David Kelly. We couldn't talk now in this environment if we didn't talk about... We've seen a wave of harassment claims, uh, in, obviously in Hollywood. People that HBO has collaborated with, Harvey Weinstein... Louis C.K. across the media industry and politics. You've been in this business a long time. What's been your reaction to it? What are you doing at HBO? What have you done? And is this a game-changing moment, you think, for yeah. women in this industry? I think if there's a silver lining in any of this, it's that it is, of course, it will be, it will be a demarcation point in different cultures and companies where willful ignorance or turning a blind eye to questionable activities or whispering that people heard throughout the corridors, that will now turn into zero tolerance. And that is a good thing because I think there was probably um, a lot of willful ignorance going on at different, in different environments because... Um, you know, um, a lot of people had commented on behavior of some of the people 
um, who you named for a long time, and I think people just didn't look too closely. Um, that ended um, with all the revelations uh, uh, of Harvey Weinstein and, and over the course of the last weeks. To your culture point, um, I think everybody understands in any culture that they're in, a microculture on a set or a macroculture inside a company, whether or not anybody would tolerate in any way, shape, or form that kind of behavior. And if people think that there's an area that they can tread, obviously not toward the level of assault and uh, sexual harassment that is so uh, repugnant that we have read about and seen, but on more subtle levels, um, they, they might. And I think if people understand that it would be immediately grounds for dismissal, people are going to be much, much more careful uh, about doing it. So cultures matter, environments matter. I'm proud to say that certainly um, my tenure, my predecessor Bill Nelson's tenure, um, zero tolerance. If you went around and woke everybody up at three in the morning, you, you would you would hear nothing but zero tolerance. Have you been surprised by just how powerful some of these women were that kept these stories secret yeah. for so long? Yeah. That's been the thing that surprised yeah, me, me, me most. Is yeah, two things have surprised me. The um, horrific extent of some of the behavior, the, the it, it just incredulous when I read the accounts. Um, and, and that, yes, and that people felt so intimidated and fearful that even women in putative positions of power who were by any metric successful felt compunction about raising their voices. Yeah, both things. So, and I think they deserve an enormous uh, kind of collective thanks from the culture for being brave enough to do it because... Um, I think it's changed the it's landscape forever. Speaking of landscapes, you mentioned before being a politics addict. I, I know that about you and, and some of the causes and people you've supported. I wanted to talk about where this comes from with you and the upbringing you had. You grew up in Connecticut with yeah. a politically involved parents, both of them, mm -hmm. and in particular your father. Yep. No, absolutely so. I watched my Dad um, was a delegate at the 1968 convention for Gene McCarthy, and um, my folks were uh, involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and my dad was an inveterate uh, reader, as I am, and so the natural um, organic uh, nature of our dinner table was, even from the time my brother and I were very young, was you know discussing the op-ed page of the Times, uh, discussing the op-ed page uh, of of the Journal, and that was very much part of how we grew up. So, um, I think for my dad, it was important uh, that we were engaged, informed participants. Uh, that it was a privilege to be a citizen, uh, and that it required that you know what was happening that you had a point of view and that you thought about it. You weren't reflexive about it. Um, it was much less important to my father where you came out on a particular issue than that you had thought hard about it. You had read deeply about it. And so 
that just became a part of how I live. My brother to this day has the exact same reading habits as I do. And um, as much as I read when I talk to people who really uh, are well-versed in geopolitics or economics, I realize I don't, I don't know very much. But um, at least it provides me with framework to continue to educate myself. You know, where you grew up, I looked at, uh, took a look at the 2016 results and just east of Hartford, quite blue. Yep. But as you and I both know, just east of there becomes pretty red. Yep. And that was an area of Connecticut, the eastern part of Connecticut. Absolutely. That Trump carried. Yeah. And I'm curious, when we talk about, and I spend so much of my time talking about partisan divide, talking about people who feel left out, who feel yeah. disenfranchised, how does that inform not just what you do on a personal level, but at HBO, choices you make over yeah. content in terms of thinking about, are we representing across all of our choices the diversity of voices that yeah. are out there? So, you know, we were, HBO was privileged to win uh, an award for diversity a few weeks back from the Cates Foundation, and I was privileged enough to accept it. And I kind of threw away my formal acceptance, and I just said, you know, how is it possible, and I was here stealing from Skip Gates' wonderful show, uh, Finding Your Roots, where it's pretty clear his conclusions are that the human genome makes clear we're 99.9% the same. And so I asked rhetorically, how is it possible, if we're 99.9% the same, that there is so much toxicity, so much meanness, so much divisiveness and vitriol in our culture? How? And I answered by saying, I think because we don't see each other. We spend too much time thinking about, worrying about ourselves. And we're not listening to one another which is the real art of good politics, is listening. My old boss, Chris Dodd, used to tell a story that uh, when, when Frank... You were an intern at first uh, started. No, well, no, I was a peon, yeah. not an intern. I actually, <laughs> I actually was employed, but I was a peon. But he used, Chris used to tell a fantastic story about Franklin Roosevelt after he died, and um, somebody watched the funeral train go by, and they were crying. And they said to this person did you know the president? And he said, no, but he knew me. And Chris always thought about that line as kind of the core value of what it meant to be a United States senator. Do your constituents feel that you know them? And that really translates to, do you see them? Are you, are you listening? Right? And so in culture, the point I made at, at the Cates dinner is, those of us who are privileged enough to have a role in, a uh, small role in popular culture, have an opportunity to tell stories which can help people see what different lives look like. Still be entertaining, still be engaged, doesn't need to be didactic, but you can do something that opens up people's eyes. If you take a show like Insecure, uh, Issa Rae's wonderful show about growing up African-American in, in Los Angeles. She, she is opening a world up to people who previously probably had no idea what that felt like to be in that demographic at this moment in history, and she's telling a story. And I think that's very important. Sonia So, who just did this wonderful documentary for us called Baltimore Rising about this city's extraordinary resilience and grit 
in making their way back after the Freddie Gray uh, murder and the tragedy of that. And you see the dignity of the city in all its dimensions trying to find their voice and their equilibrium again. Those are things that, you know, we value. Look, we're, we're not, we're not, this is not, uh, we're not, we're not here to educate, right? We're here to entertain and we're here, we are first and foremost an entertainment network. But in doing so, you can occasionally do something which is illuminating at the same time that it's entertaining. And because we have the privilege of having such a broad canvas to paint on, we have an opportunity to do that. And I think culture has a role to play in we, doing that. We live in a country right now where the president is frequently described as entertaining. Uh, is he illuminating? In your, in your opinion, is he part of the problem in terms of the culture of divisiveness? You know, I think that the most dangerous thing that David Brooks wrote a wonderful column a while ago, and he said that there are, there are three different reflexive go-to places in the United States, in American history, right? One is religious, one is tribal, and one is ideals. And he was arguing in his piece, isn't it much better when we go to our ideals? And so my hope is that whatever political party you're in. And I made the comments, by the way, that night at the Cates there, and I made clear, this isn't about should we support or not support tax reform. This isn't about where do you stand on TPP. This isn't about are we uh, handling the uh, uh, Iraq situation um, uh, with, the, with, with the right level of judgment. That's not what this conversation is about. This conversation is about making sure that we don't turn in to a tribal country where we are demonizing people who disagree with us and we are turning complicated subjects into Manichaean subjects where there's good and evil and you're on one side or the other. You and I both know, as students of politics and amateur students of history, things are complicated. And when you work through difficult problems, there are no easy solutions. And so real quality decision-making requires a little bit of compromise, and it requires your ability to sit in the other person's shoes. So I liked David's column a lot because I think that's where I would emphasize that the political system needs to go toward our ideals. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, go to the best ideals of what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights emphasize about the core values of the country. Journalism is a sacred thing. Um, we we need to support our journalists. Who sits in these seats matters. And if you look at American history, it's always matter. It doesn't mean we always agree with journalistic conclusions. It doesn't obviously mean we always have to disagree with where a particular uh, op-ed writer comes out. But, but the fourth estate is a sacred thing, and we need to support it and to, rep to remember that the best ideals of the country are built around it. I just want to finish with two questions, equally important. I probably, if we were sitting here a month ago, this probably wouldn't have come up in this way, but the AT&T Time Warner deal has hit some headwinds. Mm -hmm. Looks like it may end up in court. Are you still confident the deal will go through? Yeah, you know, look, I, I read what you read, um, and, and I think, you know, obviously there's been a delay. There's discussions between uh, AT&T and the Justice Department. Um, the CFO of AT&T said last week, I think, that it's unlikely the deal closes this year. But I, I think we'll get there. And I think the same 
um, reasons that the deal is dynamic and exciting uh, before all this are still the reasons that the di- deal is dynamic and exciting. Um, you know, vertical uh, mergers um, have been approved for 40 years for a reason. And um, I think it's exciting for HBO. I think it's exciting for the other two divisions. And I think it's exciting for AT&T as well. So I, I'm optimistic about it, yes. And tell me, I know this is a question you hate, because it reminds me of 2007, when people say Game of Thrones is coming to an end. Are you- I don't hate the question at all. <laughs> no, I don't hate it, Megan. I don't. Because what I said to you earlier has the virtue of truth, which is the line at our door is huge, right? And whether it's five prequel ideas from different artists on Thrones, whether it's Succession, Jesse Armstrong's fantastic show uh, about a Canadian potentate in the media business who's meant to turn his company over to his second oldest son and decides on his birthday that he's not going to do it, whether or not it's the next season of True Detective, the the next season of Big Little Lies, um, over and over again, you know, whether it's Lovecraft, Misha Green's extraordinary script, uh, which is a kind of horror genre film set in the 1950s, Watchman, Damon Lindelof's new idea, loosely based on the movie, but with Damon's uh, extraordinary take. I, I'm not concerned about it at all, because the, the enormity of talent that wants to work at HBO is larger today than ever. And so the thing that's so exciting, if you're in, in our chairs, is that you see that line forming. That's what gives us, you know, the confidence to know that um, the, the next great show and the next great idea is sitting there. Our, our job is to make sure we pick right and choose right and work with the right people. But that's actually a high-class problem because of the talent that we have um, who, uh, who are excited about being part of the network. You're a young guy. R- relatively. Is there, same question, is there a next act for you? You know, i tell you something. I love my job. I love my company. I love my colleagues. Uh, I love coming in every day. Um, I have another uh, little maxim, which is usually people who are, who are good at what they do breathe what they do. I kind of breathe um, what, I, what I do. I, I'm never bored. Um, I consider it an enormous privilege, and I think every day I get up and say, okay, how can we do this better? How can we get this to the next level? Um, there's no complacency inside um, my office, and there's no complacency inside our company. We're always saying to ourselves, what's next? Um, how can we build this even uh, a little deeper, a little better? Um, what's our next big thing? And so when you have the opportunity to work with the range of people that I get to work with, both on the creative side and on the business side. Um, I don't know that, that for me, um, that there are many things to do that are more exciting. So I'm loving this right now. I think, uh, you know, you think about full force what you're doing at any particular moment, and you let the future take care of itself. Richard Pepler, CEO and chairman of HBO, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Megan. Pleasure. Bloomberg Business Week Debrief. Enjoyed it very See much. See you soon, for sure. I look forward. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.